Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Lately, as more people have been taken to the skies, we've been seeing a lot of bad behavior on airplanes. Disruptions by passengers due to alcohol, and especially the refusal to wear masks, has been on the rise. For more on the rise of conflicts in the air, we'll speak to Hannah Sampson, travel reporter at The Washington Post. I mean, there's a lot of kind of, I think, small acts of defiance uh, where people are refusing to wear their masks, which is, uh, you know, a federal mandate right now on planes. But too often, those conflicts are really escalating and, and turning into shouting obscenities, shoving. As you said, in the Southwest case, somebody took a swing at a flight attendant and reportedly knocked out a couple of teeth. And the Delta incident that you mentioned, several passengers and flight attendants had to physically subdue a passenger who was being disruptive. And that's not even the first time that scenario has unfolded. So it really is kind of running the gamut, but it all kind of adds up to a situation that experts are saying is just kind of like unprecedented in terms of bad behavior in the skies. I did want to focus on the mask just a little bit more. The FAA since the beginning of the year said that there's been about 2,900 reports of unruly passengers. 2,200 of those involved something with masks. That order is in place until September 13th, I think it is. So, you know, it's going to go all throughout the summer. And that's just one of the things that there's a lot of confusion about. Your state, your city might have done away with their mask mandates and they feel, well, I'm going to get on a plane now. I don't need it. But that's just not true right now. And I mean, the CDC is even giving one set of guidance to people who are kind of living their everyday lives outdoors, indoors, whatever. But then they have these other rules for people who are in planes and in airports and in other forms of transportation. You know, it could be that there's just a lot of misunderstanding that people realize, like, I don't have to wear my mask even to Disney World or to the grocery store or whatever, but I still have to wear it on a plane. Why? And then they get mad. I think it's the confusion or the lack of, you know, one set of rules in every situation is is contributing to some of the reticence on flights. Right. And it goes a little bit both ways. You spoke to a psychologist, which I thought was interesting. Obviously, there's people that don't want to wear the mask, maybe defiance, whatever they want to do. But then there's people on high alert on the other side that want to call those people out, whether it's for their own safety or, or whatever the case may be. They're saying, hey, that person's not wearing their mask. Yeah. So you, you just kind of end up in this boiling cauldron of tension when you're on a plane because you know if you're the person who's following the rules and wearing your mask and then the, the person two seats over is a mask scoff law you're going to sit there seething and worrying about what this guy is doing and and that person is mad because somebody's going to tell him to put his mask on so it's just it is a very potentially combustible situation where tensions are high emotions are high and the people who are worried about their neighbor's mask use are worried for a reason. They, yeah. they don't want to get sick. They don't want, you know, this flight to turn into a super spreader event. So, you know, it's not unreasonable to have that worry, but it also doesn't make anything easier when you're flying. And then, you know, consequences that come because of that. Obviously, the FAA, as I mentioned, is publicizing a lot of those fines that they're putting out there. I think the highest fine that we're seeing so far is about 
$15,500 for an unruly passenger that I think uh, it started off with him not wanting to wear his face mask properly. He was also drinking those little tiny bottles of alcohol. And that's one of the other consequences. You know, a lot of these airlines have not resumed alcohol on their flights. And uh, people are saying maybe even in the airport itself, you shouldn't be doing it because people are getting onto these airplanes loaded. Many of these cases have involved alcohol, and in a lot of cases, people have their own alcohol on the It turns out, you know, newsflash, you can't, you're not allowed to do. So Southwest and American have both gone ahead and extended their pause in selling alcohol on board. They had already stopped, but they're not going to restart as soon as they had planned to. And flight attendants have said, you know, we should probably consider also cutting off alcohol at the airports because if you're going to get sloshed, you're probably going to start drinking before you get on the plane. So that's kind of one way people are saying they could try to curb some of this bad behavior. Obviously, they don't like it, but flight attendants and the cabin crew, I mean, what have they been saying uh, in reaction to all of this increase in uh, unruly passengers? They're pretty unhappy. They're they're pretty, um, you know, it's just uncomfortable and not just not just tense and not just more difficult, but it has become dangerous for, in some cases, for flight attendants when they're having to physically subdue people, when they're getting punched in the face. It's just a bad situation. And, and many of them have been, you know, raising the alarm, asking the airlines to back them up as much as possible, asking for some kind of government, I don't know, interference or like the FAA to, to continue to crack down they're kind of on the front line of this, but they also need to be backed up by everybody with more authority to make sure that they're not fighting this battle on their own. Hannah Sampson, travel reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We all want to get back out there, but be warned when making plans this summer. Everyone has the same idea as you. Right now, national and state parks are being overwhelmed with people trying to enjoy outdoor activities. At Arches National Park in Utah, they reach capacity and close the gates to visitors most days before 9 a.m. For more on how everywhere is packed right now, we'll speak to Allison Poley, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Some of the most popular national parks are expecting record crowds this summer, and these are parks that have already seen a lot of visitation. So some of these parks were closed last spring, and then when they reopened last summer, people flocked to them because they were able to be outside, they were able to social distance and enjoy the outdoors. And visitation numbers have only increased since then. So at Arches National Park, for example, the gates to the park do temporarily close when the parking lots become full. And most days that happens before 9 a.m. And they will open back up anywhere from two to five hours later. But in some cases, people have still seen lines when they go back in later in the day to try to enter the park. Yeah. And the demand is there. This April, people going to the park was up 15 percent from 2019. So this was before the pandemic. So people are wanting to get out there. One of the interesting things that happened with all of this, though, is some uh, some of these unattended consequences. If they can't get into the main park, they'll go on to some other undeveloped land that's in the nearby area. They make these kind of campsites there. Fires have started, trash. You know, it can become a a big problem for the community around there as well. 
So a lot of people started camping during the pandemic. And so more people are camping on federal lands. And in some cases, the land that they're camping on isn't intended for tourism or overnight stays. So in some of those areas, they're seeing a lot more trash, even human waste. And it creates resource management issues for the local community. You know, it's kind of a catch-22 because the people in the nearby communities obviously want tourists and visitors to come by. It helps boost their economies. But as I mentioned, you know, these things, uh, you know, trash, there's been reports of graffiti in the nearby areas. You know, all of this stuff really kind of makes a mess. And what they're saying now is that they're pushing for these national parks to maybe have a reservation system where you kind of book the time that you're going to be there. But that's also being met with some skepticism. You know, some people in the community say, if you're doing it that way, then people might skip over. They might not actually come and spend their money there. So it's a really tough uh, situation to get a handle on. It is a tough situation to get a handle on. So it's exactly like you said. So some residents and activists are proposing that Arches, in particular, institute a reservation system so people can book windows to enter the park. But as you mentioned, some people in the community fear that if people think that they can't get a reservation, then they might not even try. Or if they see if it's it's full that day and they wanted to go that day in particular, then they might just skip over it. But some other parks have reservation systems in place this year. Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado has a reservation system, as does Yosemite in California. So we are seeing other parks try that out. One of the other parts of it, too, is funding for these national parks has always been a problem. They've been losing funding and staffing leading into the pandemic. Obviously, there was a huge shutdown throughout there, but they still haven't recovered from that part as well. So funding for the national parks has not increased in proportion to visitation. So over the past decade, if you look at between 2011 and 2019, the National Park Service lost 16% of its staffing capacity, but at the same time, there was a 17% increase in visitation. So the Biden administration has proposed an increase in funding for its budget for next year, which would allow for more staff. So I guess we'll have to see if that goes through. It's kind of been the theme, you know, we've been doing a lot of stories about everybody getting back to normal, summer travel. It's been that theme that's still ongoing. Everybody has the same idea as you and is trying to get out right now. (laughs) So be ready for those long lines and having to deal with other people who are just trying to get out there as well. So the national parks are no exception in this one. Allison Poli, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Over the next few weeks, a company named Kernel will be shipping out a high-tech helmet that can read your mind. It can analyze electrical impulses and blood flow, and researchers hope they can gain insight into brain aging, mental disorders, strokes, and even what happens to the brain during meditation and psychedelic trips. For more on this new brain helmet, we'll speak to Ashley Vance, writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. The company Kernel, they've been around for about five years working to develop this technology, and I've kind of been following their journey along the way. You know, the heart of what they've done is shrink devices that you might find in a hospital. People might be familiar with, like, fMRI machines, MEG machines. There's five or six things we use today to study the brain. They tend to be really big. They're expensive. They require, like, a technician 
to oversee the procedures. And so Kernel shrunk these things down into something that's closer to like a consumer electronics device. And, and they're still able to peer through the skull to watch your neurons fire, to watch blood flow in the brain. And so, you know, the whole, the big idea here is, is with these tools being um, kind of easier to use, we may get a ton more data about how the brain works than we've ever had before. Tell me a little bit more about the devices they have. There's two devices. One they named Flow. This looks at uh, the uh, the attention span, the brain uh, brain functions like that. And then Flux is the other product that they have, and that's uh, more about brain performance. So, how do these helmets uh, look into that? Yeah, and and just so people know, I mean, the helmets they look, they look like bike helmets more or less, um, just maybe like a slightly chunkier version. And on the inside, you know, they've got lasers and computer chips and and all these sensors. But yeah, so one more or less tracks electrical activity. So when when you're thinking about something or doing an activity, you know, your neurons are firing, and this sends pulses of light through the skull into the brain and is actually able to kind of detect when your neurons fire. And so that gives us like one bucket of clues and information about interesting things happening in the mind. The other one tracks blood flow, same sort of thing. When, when you're doing an activity, um, you know, blood rushes to different regions of your brain to feed it with oxygen. And, and so the helmet looks for that. It's interesting. Uh, when I was talking to scientists, there's still a lot of debate around, which one, which method is better for which types of functions. And this is part of the reason we kind of need these things. We still don't know a ton <laughs> about what's going on in the brain when we're doing activities and thinking. And so they wanted to make both devices. Yeah, and this, these are going to be shipped out to Harvard Medical School, University of Texas Institute of, for Advanced Consciousness Studies. I mean, there's a lot of uh, big labs and, and, and companies that are going to start toying around with this. So what is the overall goal of this? Obviously, you kind of mentioned, you know, stepping away from these huge rooms with, you know, just huge machines that would do this. I think uh, Brian Johnson for himself mentioned he wanted to eventually bring this down to the cost of a, a smartphone one day so more people can start using it. But what's the overall goal with it? Yeah, you know, in the near term, while the devices are expensive, I think this is going to start out, like you mentioned, with research institutions. And so I, I talked to one scientist who studies people who have suffered from strokes or Parkinson's disease, and and often they're going through therapy sessions where they have their brains imaged by one of these expensive machines once at the beginning of the therapy session and then once at the end, six months later, to see how things went. You know, these scientists are really excited for them to wear the helmets basically every day and we would get this much better picture potentially of what therapies really work, how effective they are. And, and you know, you would be able to monitor um, the, the progress of these things much on a much more granular level. Eventually, if they get the price down and there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of these machines out there. I mean, the way Brian envisions it is this would be kind of this grand study of mental health on a way that we've never had it before. And people would essentially use these things kind of like a, a Fitbit or an aura ring um, to, to check on their body. You know, just like today, if your heart 
if you're worried about your heart, you go in to have all these tests done and, and there's tons of things we can do. If you're having mental health issues, there's really not a lot of tools um, at doctors' disposals to tell what's going on. And so, so Brian's big hope is this is like a big mental health breakthrough just by gathering so much more information. I mean, it's definitely a very interesting goal, something that could potentially help a lot of people. I did want to mention, because you put it in the article, that they might have set some type of record for rejection where... You know, a lot of investors obviously are probably skeptical about something like this. And there was a bunch of people that passed on Brian's sales pitch for all this stuff. In the end, they, they were able to get money. I think he used a lot of his own money uh, to help develop all this. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the number was 228 investors passed on Colonel. Uh, luckily, so Brian, a lot of people don't know him, but he, he's actually an incredibly rich individual. He sold a company to PayPal a few years ago and made about uh, 300 to $400 million yeah. from the sale. He bought, Venmo. So he bought Venmo as well. He did. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so, so he put... $54 million of dollars of his own money into this basically for the first four years to prove to prove that his ideas worked while everyone else was rejecting him. And then finally they got the devices to start working and they had the prototypes and, and investors put another, you know, 55 million or so into the company. Um, so it has been this huge high risk. I mean, basically people thought it was not really possible to make a device that was that could actually get any kind of decent data through the skull just from a helmet. The the thinking has been that you really need to put implants in near the neurons to get um, any sort of major breakthroughs. Right. And we're seeing uh, people like Elon Musk and his companies working on, on things like that. I think they just had a demonstration, you know, a few months ago with some pigs and whatnot with, with these brain implants. So definitely a, a much more non-invasive way to go with these helmets. I always love new tech. I always love these types of things, these ideas, these goals. But just as interesting as the tech is itself, the people behind them are also pretty interesting. So tell me a little bit more about Brian Johnson, because you spent a lot of time with him. And I mean, he he has a, an interesting health regimen. Uh, I mean, you, you put in the article snorting stem cells. He, you know, constantly getting tested. I think he's about 43, but they, you know, his body through all of this stuff, he's uh, registering more uh, as a 30 year old man. So tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, Brian's quite the the character. Uh, you know, people might be familiar with like the, the quantified self movement, this idea you're always measuring your, like a Fitbit is a rudimentary example of it, but Brian measures everything about his body and, you know, tons of doctors working on all this stuff. And he now has this, this health regimen where he, you know, he eats once a day, very early in the morning, he eats like 2,300 calories in one meal and then fasts the rest of the day. He goes to bed at eight o'clock every night and wakes up at four and, and does his workout routine and then his breakfast. And, you know, he and I, are, we're about the same age. We're both 43. And I reported on the story for about three years. And so over that time, I stayed, um, you know, I went from 40 to 43. And his biological age dropped, according to the doctors, from 43 to about 30. And he has the uh, the exercise potential of, a, of like a 25-year-old. So it was, it was a very humbling story <laughs> to report on well, as we went. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's doing IV infusions of anti-aging fluids, uh, you know, a bunch of vitamins. There's a lot that goes into it more than just, you know, uh, eating healthy and, and exercising. But uh, yeah, just, a, just an interesting look into the guy. 
himself. And as, as I said, the goal overall with this thing, it seems pretty good. And, and if we can learn more about the brain, I mean, that's going to help out in so many different ways. Ashley Vance, writer at Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.